and the name that makes it happen No further introduction to the man that's worth tracking City's clapping for his relentless backing A vasty against the former team that just went packing While they're slacking and other hosts are lacking He tells it like it is on issues that nobody's tackling While he's racking, the ones who keep on grappling The listeners, some followers who get it, keep on stacking Great friend, and the type to set a trend President to see where haters with the men, there's no pretend 17 years, he along with Pierce Entertaining Southern Kelly, backed by popular demand Intense for the listeners to resonate To the hottest topics of the day, check the resume While some local leaders seem to lack the unity My man uses his voice to do what's best for the community Westwood One, catch him on the sidelines Reporting live, what we later see in highlights No holds barred, just like on his timeline Sun filter podcast, no need to follow guidelines Meet any criteria, dropping bombs like Syria Touching down, all around, connected like Expedia Coming to your speakers live from the city, yo Bestie, welcome to the Scott Kaplan Media Great friends, thank you again for being here as I'm recording today from the Mighty 1090 Studios. But the interview this week is with a guy named Mike Smith. Now, for those of you that live in Southern California and listen to 1090, you may know who Mike Smith is because he won the Triple Crown of horse racing this year on a horse called Justify, won the Kentucky Derby, won the Preakness Stakes, won the Belmont. Um, Maybe I didn't get the order right. And he, he won these races and has gone from Hall of Famer, which is what he was already, to legend in his sport. And for those of you that live in Southern California and use the Del Mar racetrack during the summer, and I know that's not a huge number of people, but these guys, these jockeys, they're easily accessible. And Mike Smith is the LeBron James of his game. And, you know, talking to Trevor Hoffman the week before or Landon Donovan a few weeks earlier, this podcast was never really intended to talk to sports figures. But, of course, that's a lot of where my background comes from, and I love talking to these guys. But what's really been interesting is not just talking to them about regular stuff relevant to their game at that time. It's been getting to know who they are, where they're from, how they made it. And there's just a lot of similarities. And so it's pretty interesting because on this day that I'm recording the open of this podcast, because I recorded the interview with Mike yesterday, it was a Monday, today's a Tuesday. And um, today, this morning, I flew with three guys from Gillespie Field in El Cajon, San Diego, up to Santa Monica in L.A. took about 40 minutes. When I got to the plane this morning, the guy who was flying it was explaining to me how he had hand-built this plane over the course of 15 years. So when he was 18 years old, he started building this plane. Simultaneously, he was building a business, literally out of high school, he was building a business. I think it started while he was in high school, a software business. Then he started to fly other kinds of planes, and he was actually making a lot of money as a contractor for the government, flying Russian fighter jets uh, in combat situations against the U.S. military. And, and I mean, this, this guy's blowing my mind because I've known the guy for a while and he's been helping me with my startup company. And I knew that he was going to fly this plane. He told me he'd put it together with his hands. And, you know, you get to a plane like this and it's a small plane. You're like, shit, I'm putting my, my hands in this dude's life. But I felt very, very comfortable. I, I very much trusted him. And, in fact, knowing that he had built the plane by himself made me more comfortable. For some reason. 
and the flight was beautiful and it was fantastic. And I'll, I'll post videos on, on Instagram and on Twitter. And it was amazing because this is a young guy. And I feel like, you know, I grew up, respect your elders. And um, I always kind of did. And with that, I don't to some degree, you sort of think that if you're older, you know more. I find, especially in the last few years, I'm learning so much from younger people. And I'm really enjoying that. So today was so interesting because we flew up to L.A. and we had a meeting. These guys were on my podcast many months ago. They have a company called Black Box. It's a social media platform intended to help musicians, especially musicians that are struggling to make it, who are talented people, uh, to distribute their music more through social media channels from users. So if you have an emoji that has a happy face, there might be 20 songs that all are related to being happy. And so it's a way for musicians to build their audiences and to eventually, hopefully, get signed to record deals. And these are all musicians, industry insiders who are at the controls of this company. And again, they were on my podcast a few weeks ago. Brian Karsig is the guy from Louis Fourteenth, And uh, Nick Venti was a performer named Nikki Venus. And these guys have dedicated their lives to going off the road. They, they were you know, rock stars to some degree, uh, touring musicians, certainly, making money. And um, they, they're all in on this thing. So I took them up there to meet a, an old friend of mine, a guy by the name of Ross Levinson. And if you Googled Ross, you know, you'd see some negative publicity. It's all, you know, media hype bullshit, but you can't escape some of that, that stuff. But that's unfortunately part of the business that, that a guy like Ross finds himself in when you have a big-time job and you're the CEO of the L.A. Times and, you know, you're about to whack a bunch of people and the, the newsroom, you know, they go after you the way they know how to. So... But, but he's an unbelievable guy, reputable guy, close friend, many years, and I brought him to this meeting, and we flew up to the Santa Monica airport, and we all met in this conference room, and I'm thinking to myself, dude, I'm a kid from a small town. Now I got a buddy who built his own plane, who flew us up here in 40 minutes, and we're having these techie social media meetings with a guy who you know, is the former CEO of Yahoo, who's my boy, I mean, it's, and I'm the connector to it all. And all of this, by the way, is happening in my little world because of my own startup company, which I've been learning so much about my own business by doing these podcast interviews. Because as you're about to hear with Mike Smith, and this is why I brought up this guy who, who was flying the plane today. This guy who was flying the plane started flying when he was 11 years old. 11 years old, he started flying planes. By the time he was 17, he had every license he needed, and he was flying fighter jets. And now he's 36 years old, and he started building a plane 18 years ago. It took him 15 years to hand build it, and for the last three years, he's been flying it. So from 11 to like 15, 16, this guy who was flying the plane today, his name is Tyson, he, he, he was developing these lifelong skills from 11 to 14. Mike Smith, who won the Triple Crown this year, again, he wins that derby. He's still got a chance. You know, um, he, he gets on to the second leg, and he, that's where he says the major pressure was because if you don't win the second part, you can't, you can't get to the next. When Mike Smith's 11 years old, he's living on a ranch in New Mexico. And one farmer says, I've got a fast horse. And another farmer says, I've got a fast horse. And the other guy says, well, I'll bet you 10 grand. And little Mike Smith at 11, 12, 13, 14 years old, he's riding those horses. He's getting paid a couple bucks just to be a rider. Risk his life. But he was a really good rider. So he started betting on himself. You'll hear all of this stuff coming up. Here's what happened. I got together with Mike Smith at my friend's the Brigantine, 
Uh, this is my spot in Del Mar, especially during the summer. For those of you that are not in San Diego, not in Southern California, if you ever come, you watch the Breeders' Cup, you see this Del Mar. It's the most beautiful, spectacular place. And the Brigantine is the restaurant that just overlooks it all. And it's got the most spectacular menu. But they're famous, especially on what I would call the south side of the restaurant. They're famous for their, their fish tacos. And the, when I say the south side, when you walk into the right, the bar, that's, that's your local's. That's where you'll find me. That's that's your locals hang. Um, the dining room is wonderful for families and visitors, but I'm I'm over here in the in the locals section if you need me. And so Mike Smith and I sat in a seat that I would have lunch in twice a week, and we just got down. And it wasn't hardcore horse racing. It was how did he become the best at what he does? Mike Smith, Triple Crown winning jockey this week on the Scott Kaplan Solo Podcast. And that's it. We've started, man. We are underway. Okay. Yeah, we're underway. First of all, thanks for coming to meet me here at the Brigantine. Is this a place that you stop by often during the summer when you're down here, or is this not one of your regular spots? No, it's one of my spots. I just gain a little weight every time I come in here, though. I've got to be careful. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, Thanks so much for, again, coming. I think this is really cool. I wanted to get here inside the Brigantine before the place opens. You can feel free to pick the mic up, hold it. Everything's all natural. Nothing will get edited. So whatever you choose to do, Mike. So every time you come on the radio show, we wind up talking about whatever's relevant at that time, you know, uh, whether it was the Kentucky Derby or the Preakness or the Belmont mm-hmm. or the start of Del Mar racing season. Every time you're on the radio, we only get a few minutes to talk about racing. So today I was hoping that we could talk more about you, your career, your background, and then hopefully we find some really cool information in there and some stuff that maybe we didn't know about you. What do you think about that? Sounds good. I'm, I'm kind of boring, though, really, to be honest with you. I've, other than being blessed to have ridden some, some wonderful horses, I, I try to keep it pretty simple as far as my life goes. You, know? you think you're boring? I think I'm pretty boring, yeah. I'm usually in bed by 9 <laughs> get up early, do my work, go to the gym, work out, and get a lot of rest, you know. Just, uh, I work out so much and, and just busy traveling and riding, you know, I get, you get pretty pretty worn out, you know. So a couple weeks ago, I had a guy named Landon Donovan on the podcast. Yeah. You know who he is? Yes, I do. And I've known Landon in just the same way. Like, you know, uh-huh. know him on the radio. We're always talking about something relevant. But we had spent about an hour and a half in my house, and he started talking about things how he didn't want to go do public appearances. He didn't want to go sign autographs. He didn't want to have uh. to go make any, anything that took away from what his focus was, which was just to be the best. You know, and I was blown away by wow. how he was talking about this. And already you saying, you know, you're boring, number one, <laughs> and that you're in bed early makes me think that that's because everything you do in your life is pretty much about training and being the best jockey in the world. I would say so, um, but for me, I mean, well, with, 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 you know, with being blessed to ride, you know, these kind of horses that I've been so blessed to ride, uh, comes that obligation, though, you know, with, with fans and having to, having to do a lot of that, and, and, uh, and I actually don't, don't mind it, you know, all that much, so the only thing I do mind is when I don't have quite enough time, to be honest with you, because I hate to leave anybody out, but, uh, it's just part of it, somehow I, 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 I still tend to stay focused even though all that's going on I, I don't ever don't even think about it it's just part of it and I just kind of go through it and, and uh, stay focused on what I got to focus on and that's of course riding you know riding whatever race it is that's coming up that I need to ride 
Are you able to, in your business, because most of the people who will listen to this podcast are, yes, they may be sports fans, uh-huh. um, but they may not necessarily be horse racing fans. And so these interviews, a lot of times when they're with sports personalities, Trevor Hoffman last week, I mentioned Landon Donovan, they're, we always find things from them about how they prepared, how they got to where they were. And I want to start with you kind of going back to the beginning because I hear from <laughs> you're from New Mexico and I say okay yeah. well the only thing I really know about New Mexico is Breaking Bad you ever watch that show oh it was the greatest I like that show <laughs> I loved it I watched every episode of that show I thought that was the greatest <laughs> ending of any television series yeah, ever I, I thought so as well and uh, I think I was intrigued by it just because it was done in New Mexico to start with but it actually was just an amazing show I mean it it went on to prove it, you know, by winning all the awards that it that it won. You know, it was actually a really, really good show. But, but yeah, I'm from from that area, from New Mexico. Yeah. Okay. I don't really know anybody from New Mexico. I mean, that's like meeting people from New Mexico is like meeting people from South Dakota. <laughs> you know, it's like Brian Erlacher's from New Mexico, man. Yeah, that's right. That's just went into the Hall of Fame. Just went into the Hall of Fame. Yeah. yeah. But I'm just curious. You're you just had your birthday, 52. It's somewhere in there, I, I keep. I keep staying right around there. Yeah. <laughs> in your business, I guess you got to try and stay as young as you can. You know, for an athlete, good thing I ain't the one doing the running. Otherwise, I'd probably be already washed up by now. But, but as long as you can keep the body in good enough shape and the mind still thinking that, that you, can, you can carry on in our sport anyway. But go, go back to when you were a little kid. I want to know what's going on in, like, you know, you're a kid, 10 years old. It's the mid-70s. You're in New Mexico. What is going on in your life back then? Man, you know, horses and horses and, and more horses, to be honest with you. Um, you know, I was uh, always pretty athletic as a, as a kid growing up, uh, but just wasn't ever big enough to, to play any of the sports that I loved playing, which was football and basketball and baseball, for that matter. But uh, so I don't know. I just took to race, you know, riding match races uh, as a way of competition and to compete. I, I loved it. You know, I was always in 4-H, which is a, a you know, livestock program you know where you learn how to take care of livestock and you learn well, to run barrels and that? How, how did you as a little kid in new mexico get into horses again perception right i mean was everybody on a ranch in new mexico <laughs> or there were wild horses running yeah. everywhere i mean i really don't know what's going on there it, it, it really is kind of that way to be honest with you uh, it, it's kind of horse country you know, so there's a lot of guys you know a lot of farmers you know a lot of horse people uh a lot of people from New Mexico grow up rodeoing, you know, make the national finals. I have a lot of friends who are, went on to be very, very talented. Uh, but, yeah, and that's I grew up on a ranch. My grandparents owned horses. Uh, I had an uncle that trained. So it was in my backyard. I mean, it, it came pretty easy to me. But, uh, you know, I started competing at, at riding races at a very young age. You know, I started when I was probably 12 years old. So by the time I was 14, I'd already, I'd already been riding quite a bit. And uh, we'd ride match races, they call them. And it's just one farmer or one rancher against another rancher. One thinks his horse is faster than the others. And they put up a certain amount of money and they race for it, you know, whatever distance that they want to race at. And I was kind of the hired hand that, that uh, went along with, with the horse. You know, I, I got, to, got to ride those races. And, and, uh, You're saying that by 14 years old, mm-hmm. in these locally arranged races meeting places right yeah. uh-huh. <laughs> that you were already a guy who could ride horses that the, the owner would say i got 14 year old mike smith i feel pretty good about my chances yeah but believe it or not back then uh 
probably started really around 11, but didn't get really good till I was about 14. I, I kind of really knew what I was doing and knew the whole the whole uh, the whole part about it, you know, and, and uh, learned a lot from it. And and uh, I did well, you know, at a very young age. I was able to save a lot of money, put it away, so that I could. I was going to ask you, streets, were, were you, know? you a professional? Oh, I was. I was good at 14 years old, though. I mean, <laughs> if you're riding and there's these are money races. You're getting paid something, right? Well, I wasn't getting paid enough, to be honest with you. So I learned to, to, to take half the part of the bet. You know, if it was a $10,000 match race, I'd take 1000 of it, you know, and I'd put my own money up. So if I really believed in the horse or the horse I was riding and thought we could win, I wouldn't ride unless I got, I got a part of it, you know. So that would be the way I made my money, really, because they'd only pay you maybe 25 50 bucks to ride the race. Well, if I could make an extra 1000 on the side, put my own money up. And, and uh, of course, if you lose... Uh, if it was an iffy thing, I had partners. I'd get people to go in with me. But if I really thought I was a no-brainer, I'd put all my own money up. <laughs> Did you, those horses, when you're 14 years old, that you're putting your own money up, are those horses horses that you will have ridden, trained, gotten to know? Because now when you go out to a yeah. race in your profession nowadays, I know we've had this conversation. There are times you get on a horse, it may be the first time you've ever been on that horse. Back then... Did you have a different kind of relationship with those sorts of horses? Sometimes. I mean, if there were horses that we had that were matching, I, of course, I'd probably probably even got them going, started them from the ground up, and actually broke them and spent maybe years with them, you know. Uh, but, again, you know, there might be a guy that come in from Mexico or somewhere on Texas to bring one in that I've never met before, and I'd jump on it for the first time. So it just all depended, you know, on, on what was whose horse it was that we were matching. At 14 years old, could you um – create an instant sort of rapport with a horse the first time you got on the horse similar to now 35 years later the way you do now oh yeah without a doubt uh it's it's it's, it's like meeting uh, uh people for the first time uh you know any any sort of animal that you get a chance to meet a dog you know for instance uh, there's a there's just a little click there, a bond, and you can tell if they're kind of standoffish or if they want to be left alone. You just got to learn how to get along with them. And for some odd reason, that, that part always kind of came easy to me. You know, you got to learn not to necessarily try and make them do things your way. You try and kind of do things their way, but get it to go your way with, with <laughs> them thinking that it was their idea. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of seems difficult, but it really isn't. So, Okay. I want to just keep going back into those days when you were racing like that, when two farmers might come together and say, I got a fast horse and I've got a fast horse. Let's go race and put money on the line. What were the conditions? I mean, when you race now at Del Mar or at Santa Anita or back the Kentucky Derby, I mean, you're racing on what would be considered pristine conditions for the sport now. What, what, were they fields? Did somebody sometimes, create their own track? Yeah, sometimes they were just a plowed field that someone kind of created a racetrack on. Sometimes straight they ahead would, race? Straight ahead How sometimes. Far? About the furthest you would go back then would be about 440 yards uh, would be the furthest. And some tracks were, were pretty good. Some weren't very good. Uh, there was no rules. I mean, it was pretty much uh, anything goes, man. So... A lot of times when the race was over, you hit the ground running. You didn't even <laughs> – you grabbed your money and you were out of there as fast as you could get out of there before the other guy got back because you might have done something to him. You know? what, if, what if there was a – what we would call in today's world a photo finish? What if there was like a close race? Well, they had judges. You know, they would hire uh, – they would have two judges uh, – 
from both sides, uh, and they would have to call it. If they couldn't call it, then it was a no no goal. They just you just no one surrendered any money, but you always had two judges. Nowadays, when you go ride a horse in a race, that uh-huh. horse may take three weeks, a month, maybe two months, six months, and not race again. Back then, if it was a tie, if it was close, would they say, let's go, let's go do it again? <laughs> a lot of times, it was a quarter horse. you give it a few hours, you know, let them, let them kind of rest a little bit, and then you'd go back again because you probably only race 350 yards to 440 yards, so they could do that. A thoroughbred race is a, a lot, lot more taxing on a horse, you know. So at this stage of your life, though, when this is, these are the craziest stories. This is the stuff I was looking yeah. for, man. I can't get this on the radio. Uh, you're living with your grandparents at this st- stage of your life, at, right? At the time, yes. So yeah. explain to me. You're a little kid. And as I understand it, your mom and dad split up when you were young. Is that uh-huh. right? And my mom, my mom was going to college, uh, so she was going for her master's degree, which she wound up getting and became a school teacher. And it was a school teacher for many years. As a matter of fact, she just retired a, a few months ago. But I lived with my grandparents quite a bit back then. Uh, so yeah, and my grandfather was really into, into into these match races, you know. And I, I don't know, you know, thinking back on it now, I think that maybe that's, uh, I think I had more pressure on me as a young kid back then and, and I, I think it, it, it's helped me in in my late you know later years right and, you know a lot of these high pressure situations uh they kind of just come natural to me now I, I think a lot of it because of that early start and, and learning you know so so young so I think your, it helped your, your your mom and dad though how old were you when they when they split up I think I was seven when they split up and your mom like I know my parents just as an example uh-huh. my, my I'm 48 my father's 70 and my mother is 68 or 69. So they were young, 22, 21, like right in that neighborhood, you know. But back then, in the late 60s, early 70s, uh-huh. that was somewhat natural. It your really mother, I, I think I read your mom was like a young girl. She was like 19 years old when you were born, right? She was probably a year younger than that, I think. She was 17 or 18 whenever oh. I was I was born. I, both of us lie about our age, so I'm not sure. <laughs> sure. I can't ever seem to get the, the, the exact number down. But, uh, yeah, she was very young. Uh, but man, she was you know driven uh, and very successful. You know, she went on to do a lot of great things. Was your dad also a young guy? Yeah, he was young, and uh, he rode for a little while actually. You know, I think maybe that's where it just kind of came natural to me. Uh, but he had moved away and, and moved into the East Coast uh, in Philadelphia. Actually, for many years he lived there uh, and, and worked with horses as well. So, so it's you and you have a brother. <laughs> I met your brother just a few weeks ago. Uh, this is yeah. one of my favorite parts about the summer in Del Mar uh-huh. is that the horse racing community seems to always do something fun. It seems like there's an event almost every week for everybody in the, in the community to get together. Jockey karaoke a few weeks ago <laughs> at the Belly Up, and I saw you and your brother perform. I got the judge. You guys were great. So that was the first time I'd met him. Is he your younger brother? Yeah, he's three years younger than me. Yeah, I messed him up pretty bad that night. I should have just <laughs> stayed lip syncing. I, I started feeling so good. I, I joined in, and I, I blew it. <laughs> I blew it. <laughs> he was good, though. He was good. He was real good. It was his moment to shine, and I had to just jump in there and mess it up. <laughs> All right, so, so your big brother, he's little brother. Uh-huh. Your mom's a young lady. There's a, a, a divorce. Again, I'm just wondering, is it because your parents were both super young people, and now all of a sudden they've got kids, and they're young, yeah. and who knows what to do? I think they were, man, at 17, you know, 18 years old. You're, uh, you're such a different person by the time you're in your 30s uh, from that age. Uh, and, and that's all it really was. I just think they just grew apart, you know, grew different ways. As I tell you, my mom was very uh, driven and, and wanted to, you know, de- was determined to get her master's and become a teacher. And, uh, 
you know, he loved the racetrack life. And, and uh, you know, that takes you to a lot of different places. And it took him out east. So they just wind up splitting up. The long distance thing just didn't last for them. Which was, uh, which was honestly was fine with me. I, I, it never affected me, I don't think, in any way. Because I had uh, her brothers, you know, and I had my grandfathers, my grand, both my grandparents. Uh, so I always had father figures around me. Uh, and I had my own uh, agenda, man. I wanted to be a writer, and I wanted to start as early as, as, early as I can. And, and I actually started uh, a year earlier than I was supposed to. You know, I actually started when I was 15, you know. So I started at a very young age, man. So um, did you still have a relationship when your dad moved back east? Oh, yeah. Yeah, as a matter of fact, uh, he, he recently passed away, but we were tight, really tight. Uh, it, it took a few years. I was busy. He's still, he didn't grow up. It took him, you know, some, some men, it just takes him a while to grow up. But he, when, once he did, man, we, we became very, very close. Very close, actually. How long, how long um, after you started riding professionally? I'm just curious, like, let me go back a second. What did he do in the horse racing industry? He, he got him, he galloped horses, so he would be the one that would get on him in the morning. He was an exercise rider, get on him in the morning. and, and uh, He was very good, though. He was very high, you know, highly sought, sought after. He was really good with a horse. Uh, so, you know, he got on some great horse, like Smarty Jones when he was a baby. All, you know, some really, really good horses uh, when they were young, and he's really good at teaching them. So he was very popular and always had a pretty good job. You know. But he did not get to do what you do. No, he was too big. Too heavy. He was. He's about anywhere from 20 to 30 pounds, just too big. I mean, he tried to do it, and he did it for a little while, but he just had to fight his way too much. When you talked earlier about wanting to play other sports, football and baseball and all these other sports, but you weren't big enough, as a little kid, did you look at your father or your mother and say, these people around me are adults, but they seem <laughs> abnormally small compared to the rest of the world. You I'm going to be know, tiny. I mean, I'm just curious. Yeah. Do you have a sense that you're going to be... Um, physically capable because my son said to me yeah. hey dad I'd like to be a jockey and I said well you can be for about two more years because he was about 11 at the time you know? he's gonna grow <laughs> right, yeah. yeah so did you know that that physically could you look at the adults around you and see that your stature would be such that you would be able to fit in this profession you know I didn't in the beginning I just didn't think about it much uh, but as I started playing sports man, the other kids were just bigger Man, they were bigger, they were faster, and I just I couldn't I couldn't keep up. So then right away, I really started going the other way. Then then I wanted to stay small. You know, I went from wanting to get big and, and trying to eat a lot and try to get as big and as fast as I could to doing totally the opposite. You know, watching what I eat, try to eat healthy, and, and uh, by what age? So so I could stay light. Oh, at a very young age. By the time I was again riding races, by the time I was 11, 12, I was already watching what I ate and. And I'm, I'm just naturally small anyway. As you, you've met my mother before. She's every every bit of maybe 4'11". You know, <laughs> she's not very tall. My father was a little bit taller. He was probably about 5'7", five, 5'8". Five, but I was blessed to, to stay small. As you saw my brother, he's a lot bigger than I am. Yeah. Uh, but he didn't have the diet life like I did. <laughs> so it sounds like because you had the stability of your mother... And even though your dad had moved away, but he was in the horse business, so his influence somehow had gotten to sure, you. Sure, yeah. Having your mother's brother or brothers, how many? I, it, her one brother, uh, his name was Thomas Vallejos. Uh, he still actually trains back in New Mexico, but he was really a big father figure to me. You know, he's the one that started me and helped me out, taught me the basics on, on how to stay on anyway. And then you just learn as, as you go along. But, but you also had your grandfather. 
yeah. you and your grandmother and yeah. grandfather. So yeah. it, it sounds to me like, again, now the picture's painted in my head, right? There's this big ranch out in the middle of this, this place in New Mexico. <laughs> All I can see right now is like red rocks. I mean, I don't see any color whatsoever. I don't know if I'm painting the right picture or not, no, but this you, is what I see. You're close. And, and yeah. I see dry. I see Very hot dry. and dry. But I see horses and hay, and there's... A lot of cattle. Yeah? Yeah, yeah a lot and, of cattle. But there's little 11-year-old Mikey, but he's got a family around him. Oh, yeah. So it wasn't like, geez, mom nah. is here and dad's here and I'm screwed up. I mean, it sounds like you had great family support. I had ex- a whole lot of family support. I mean, I, I was raised um, with a lot of love and a lot of good people. I think the scary part, looking back at the whole thing, was leaving home at such a young age. I mean, I was in... You know, all over the Midwest, even in Chicago, at, and I was a teenager, which is crazy. You know, I, I think I rode my first Kentucky Derby when I was 18, 17 or 18 years old, and I was already traveling. My grandparents would travel with me in the beginning uh, for a little while. Then I just kind of went out on my own. So that looking back at that, man, I wouldn't send a kid out in this world in my age uh, for anything. So that, that was probably the scary part. But, of course, back then... Life was a little simpler, I think. Well, but I think we hear about this a lot um, in other sports, though, right? Like, I mean, sometimes you hear about a gymnast yeah. who, by the time she's 12 or 13 yeah. or 14, there's all this pressure because she's going to the Olympics. Or uh, sometimes a tennis star. You know, sometimes there's a, a kid protege, and they're 15 years old, and they're yeah. already dumb. You know, they're traveling, and school's not as important anymore. <laughs> what, what, what was going on with you in school if you were so young at that time? Uh, skipping every day I could, to be honest with you. Uh, my mom used to drop me. It's a true story. My mom used to drop me off at, at school, and I'd literally go through the front and straight down the hall out the back. <laughs> My uncle would be waiting on the other side, and I'd jump in the truck, and we'd, we'd go get on horses. I, I would have, you know, anywhere from 15 to 20 to get on. But I was doing well. I was making money. I'd get like $10 a, a, a horse, each, each horse I got on. So if I got on, you know, 15 to 20 horses a day, I mean, it adds up, you know, and I was doing well. And somehow, some way, I... I I learned to read and write along the way pretty pretty well. I mean, you'd be surprised, I actually. Sounds, though, like even back then, your mind was thinking business and money. I mean, we can talk about riding and working out yeah. and the physical nature and dieting and all the stuff you have to do to be the world's greatest jockey, but it also sounds like your mind was already rolling business and money. And oh, yeah, definitely the only problem was is, uh, is I had a lot of cash. I just didn't didn't have the the, the knowabouts or what to what to do with it. So, you know, I, I learned to hire people that are, you know very reputable people. People, you know, I do my homework and, and hire people who actually spent their whole life and their time and went to school to do these kind of things. And I was very blessed that way. That uh, you know, what you a, do one day a lot show up with up. A, a bag of cash? Oh yeah, no way. Yeah, I probably had about. I remember my when I opened up my first bank account, I probably had thirty, forty thousand in it, cash that I just had at the time, you know. And you and bring the cash into the bank, into the bank, and just gave it to them. Open up an account. How old were you? Probably at that time, I, I didn't have a checking account. But I was about sixteen, I guess. Yeah, I was about fifteen, sixteen. And I started out, I just used to pay everybody cash. Pay everybody who? The valet, uh, agent. You know, anybody that I owed money to. Oh, I, this is when you've already kind yeah, of gotten into already the circuit. Got going and yeah. Were you helping your mother financially at that time? Yeah, when I could, you know, every chance I could. Uh, again, she was very independent and did very well on her own. So so she didn't need a whole lot of help. Gotcha. 
So, so explain this though. How do you go from being like 11, 12, 13, 14, racing these, these, you know, 440 uh-huh. yard sprints on these horses, as you've described it, when one farmer and another farmer decided let's have a match race. How do you go from being that little kid who's getting good and getting better? And now maybe people are even talking like, hey, there's this kid over here. He's really good. How do you become a professional? How do you go from messing around, running in the fields in races to getting to the major leagues of your sport? You know, I think it's like anything in, in life or sports or any, any job. I mean, how, about, how does someone become you know, a broadcaster? I mean, you start out picking at it, you know, working around the business, and it just kind of takes you places. Uh, you know, riding, just, it, just, it just naturally, one, one thing takes you to the next and to the next and to the next. And, and if you have a passion for it, it's a blast all the, all the way through. It's never really a job. So you, you actually love it, and you just keep, you keep doing you know, watching, uh, getting the opportunity to watch. I remember at a young age watching Secretariat win the Kentucky Derby, uh, sitting there at my grandmother's uh, coffee table watching the TV and thinking, man, I, I think maybe those are the ones that I want to ride. I want to go further. You know, instead of the 350 yards or 400 yards, I want to ride thoroughbreds, you know, horses that, that, that run a distance of ground. And that's how I got into thoroughbreds. So I just started getting around them as much as I could, and then that would take me to – I think the first place was uh, Ridosa, New Mexico, where I learned to you know, gallop there as well. And then I started riding in Santa Fe, went into Albuquerque, El Paso, Texas, and from there to Arkansas, Chicago, all over the Midwest until uh, you get polished, you know, and you just get better and you get better. And it, it's like any athlete, you know, you have kind of talent scouts out there who are agents. Man, they, they know who's, who can ride and who can ride. You didn't have as much TV back then, but you, by word of mouth, you would hear things and Next thing you know, some guy would reach out to you and scoop you up, and you'd be on to the next place, you know, or the next place. And that's just kind of how it goes until you get really good, and then you become more in demand, and, and great things start to happen if you keep your, you know, keep on the straight and narrow. What was your first win? It was in Santa Fe as a, as a recognized racetrack. It was in Santa Fe, a horse called, uh, I think it was for, Forever Man, I believe his name was. What kind of race? you remember? It was a sprint race, going five and a half furlongs, I think, and he won by many. I know he won by a pole. Uh, but, yeah, that was my guy named Jim. Uh, uh, Wilson Brown was his name, was the trainer's name. Did you celebrate like you just won the Kentucky Derby? I mean, that's your first win. <laughs> it was so long ago, I can't hardly, to be honest with you, I hardly <laughs> even remember it. Uh, uh, man, I think for 37 years ago, I believe it would be, something like that. But, yeah, I mean, I, I celebrate all of them like they're, you know, they're all pretty special. Anytime you can cross that wire first, man, it, it's, it's, it's a feeling like no other. So if you were a baseball player, I'd want to hear how you went from single A and you were in this town and you went to double A and you were in this town and you finally made it to triple A and you were in this town and boom, you made it to yeah. the major leagues. You've mentioned starting in smaller places in New Mexico. I mean, anybody who's going to listen to this who doesn't know anything about horse racing, and maybe it even doesn't even care about horse racing, everybody's heard of Churchill Downs. Everybody in Southern California has heard of Santa Anita or sure. Del Mar. If you kind of know a little bit, just a little bit, you've probably heard of Saratoga. The names of the tracks that you've already mentioned, you'd have to be a real horse racing insider to know these tracks. Exactly. So just take us through where you went from, you said New Mexico, then when you said you, got, you went to the Midwest, where's that? <laughs> well, I started doing really well in New Mexico uh, right away. So my grandfather had talked to a trainer that used to be 
used to train in New Mexico was training in Arkansas. He'd go to Arkansas, Nebraska, and Churchill Downs. And he was telling them how, you know, they thought that I was going to be pretty good. I should take a look at him. And he said, you know, I happen to be in town the following week. He said, I'm coming to look at some horses. Uh, I'll watch him ride. And the day he was there, I, I rode four and I won all four. And so he, his name was Gary Thomas. So he, he got me an agent uh, in Hot Springs because meet was getting ready to open up then. And a couple of my fellow riders were actually going there, Casey Lambert and a few other guys. So at least I had somebody to stay with. And next thing you know, I'm in a car all packed up heading to Hot Springs, Arkansas. And how old were you? 16. I think I was 16 at the time. God, I can't even believe it. Yeah. By yourself. Yeah. I remember going through Texas thinking that Texas was so big. You know, it took like hours. It took like six hours to drive through Texas, you know, and every other state was just so much smaller. But always thinking, man, when it's all said and done, I think I'm going to move back into Texas. I, I, li- I like that, that place. Uh, since then, of course, you come out here to California and you fall in love with the weather and everything around here. You'll never leave. But, you know, from Arkansas, it took me to Nebraska, from Nebraska into Chicago, Chicago into Churchill, Kingland. And then uh, I started doing really well. Uh, around Kentucky and I remember it I think it was in, in, the, in the late 80s an agent out from New York reached out to me I was second leading rider at Churchill Downs Pat Day was the dominant rider out there back then and next thing you know I'm in the big A man I always thought I'd wind up out in California first being from New Mexico but uh, it was New York where I went first and, and wow I mean started out with a bang there and, and uh, other than a few minor setbacks you know through injuries man my career has been pretty incredible when you first got to, say, Churchill Downs, uh-huh. for example, and you walk into the jockey's room, how old do you think you are at this point? <laughs> 16, 17. Okay, so you're a 16-year-old kid. Yeah. Do you have guys that you looked up to that were jockeys or were, again, oh, yeah. perception? I'm thinking small-town kid. He doesn't know from any of this nonsense. <laughs> no. he, all he knows is get on the horse and ride as fast as he can. You actually... Well, I had a, such a passion for the sport. I, I knew my, I knew history like the back of my hand like I was almost there back in the day I, you know, I, I read every book uh, I knew every writer I knew every I knew stats you know just like you would a kid growing up you know being crazy about baseball man you know everyone's batting average I mean I knew everyone's everything I knew how they held the reins I could tell you what side of their mouth their, their tongue was on when they were riding most of the time and that's how much I loved the sport so when I got there man, I knew who everybody was and had so much respect, you know, and... Uh, Who's there? Who are the guys that when... Oh, Because if, if a kid walks into the locker yeah. room now, if, and, and he looks through the locker room, he goes, oh, my God, Mike Smith is right there. He just won the Kentucky Derby. Victor Espinoza, when he's healthy, uh-huh. is right over here. He won the, the Triple Crown yeah, as well. Gary and, Stevens. Gary there, Stevens yeah. is a Hall of Famer and star of a movie, See Biscuit, all about horses. I mean, the, you guys are the three elder statesman if you now, will nowadays yeah. yeah so who were the elder statesmen when you walked in as well, a 16 year old in the midwest it was you know pat day i looked up to pat day a lot don brumfield uh john lively you know larry schneider uh a lot of these none guys none of those names ring a bell with me at no, all except pat were, day they were midwest you know guys but they were brilliant riders i mean uh, they had that kind of ability they could probably go anywhere they were just happy happy to be from where, where they were where they were at and where they were from and they just wanted to stay there you know, I always wanted to travel. I always wanted to make it out to either New York or Santa Anita. That's what I always dreamed of. So, and then once you get into New York, man, you have Angel Cordero, Cinto Vasquez, Georgie Velasquez, uh, Jerry Bailey. I mean, you have all these guys, uh, you know, that were huge out here, I mean, out in the East. Uh, then you get out in the West, and, of course, you had Shoemaker, you know, uh, Lafitte Pinkai, man, Chris McCarron, Eddie D, and then all these 
amazing athletes. Uh, but I, you know, I looked up to all of them and I learned and I learned a whole lot from them. Now that they're retired, I still learn from the kids that are coming up. If somebody's on fire, they're doing something right. So I try to figure out what it is he's doing that I, maybe I'm not. Or a lot of times it's like uh, having a, a, you know, just because you're, you're Tiger Woods, as you can see, you can, your game can go off a little bit, even though you, you know, you're, you're that good. So if I'm not winning, I'm, I'm, I'm watching, I'm, I'm paying attention to who is. Uh, they, they could be a kid that just started, but uh, as long as they're doing good, they're doing something right, and I'll figure it out. So I mentioned at the beginning we're at the Brigantine. Would you like to order some lunch? Because I, this isn't my oh, spot. You. What is your name here? Let me, I'm, I'm right in the middle of the podcast. What is your name? My name's Amanda. Hi, Amanda. How are you? <laughs> I'm good. How are you? Good. This is Mike Smith. Hello, Mike Smith. How do you, are you? Do you know, do you know who you? this gentleman is? Uh, I know he rides horses. He does? Yes. But do you know that he won the Triple Crown? That's pretty cool. Do you know what that means? Thank you. That's a big deal. It means that he's the very best in the <laughs> world at what he does. You and my mom That's think so. Awesome. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like, I think I'm all right at what I do, but I'm not the best in the world. That's the best in the world right there. That's the goat. Uh, well, thank Mikey, you. Mikey, do you want to order some lunch here at the break? I'm, I'm actually okay. Uh, right, normally, what, I would be, but I'm, I'm What fine would right you now. order? I'm curious. Oh, I'd get tacos, man. Yeah, I, I know. Me tacos. too. <laughs> I would order too, but because I got all this stuff all over the table, I'm going to wait until we're yeah. done. Is that all cool? Right, do we want anything to drink besides water? No, I'm good. I'm good, too. Good? Thank all you. All right, let me know if you need anything. Thanks. Thank you so much. All right. That's service in the middle of a podcast, yeah, Mike, is what that pretty, is. That's pretty neat. So you you go and you see all these guys, right? But but I'm thinking, like, if you're a football player, I know you love football. If you're a football player, you're coached. You know, there's, there is a coach. Yeah, that's, there's an assistant yeah. coach. There's a position coach. These people are there to coach you, the football player. As a jockey, do you even – is there coaching – you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of coaching going on if you're, if you're willing to learn and want to learn and, and listen. Uh, all the great riders, man, they, they want to teach you. First of all, it's dangerous out there. So they certainly don't want you riding bad. They don't want you making mistakes because everything's a chain reaction. If you make a mistake, then you probably mess them up, even though they're behind you. Uh, so, yeah, they all coach you. You know, great trainers coach you. Uh, You'd be amazed if, if you know, when you, you're really getting coached all the time, although we actually don't have a coach. You know, we coach each other in the room. You know, there'll be at times, you know, I'll, I'll walk up to Gary and ask him, man, what do you think? Did I do this or do that? And he'll tell me what he thinks, you know, with his experience. Of course, I'm going to listen to him and trust him. And that's just kind of how you learn. But, but learning how to ride or race uh-huh. or be safe or all these things, are that, that's sort of kind of the obvious stuff that someone yeah. in your profession has to get to know. I'm more curious about how you learned um, how to be open-minded, how to learn from young guys versus being egotistical about being the senior <laughs> guy. I mean, all these principles that I'm hearing you talk about, where is all this, how is all of this formed? For a guy who's yeah. dropping out of school at a very young age, like you said, hey, I somehow figured out how to read and write, you know. But but he this is not something you learned by going to get an MBA somewhere. Where did the, the, you learn to create your own principles of you know, writing slash business slash life, etc.? All the stuff you're talking about, watching, you know, watching and, and learning from. It's it's amazing if you just open your eyes and you watch. Uh, what to do, what not to do. You know, I learned a lot of the stuff I learned is what not to do. I mean, I've seen uh, just so many talented young riders out there, probably every bit as good, if not better than I am. But they're making mistakes doing something because they're not number one. 
So what is it that they're doing? And you just watch. Would rather that be going out every night or, or being so narrow-minded, thinking that they've already know it all and or, or whatever it might be that, that they're doing, you know, so I learned what to do and what not to do. And, and, you know, and, and in doing that, of course, you're still making your own mistakes and you learn from them, you know, and just realizing that you, you, know, you, you did something wrong and you got you to ride it somehow. But I think just from watching, you know, you, you, the only way you're going to learn, I, I, like I said, I don't care how good you are. Like Tiger Woods has a, has a coach. You know, some, someone, and someone out there is always going to be better than you. So I just try and figure out how to reinvent myself sometimes. You know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a product and I got to sell it. You know, and I, I can't being I'll always be who I am, and that's you know try to be a good person. But you gotta you gotta sell yourself sometimes in different ways and, and do different things. And you know sometimes, man, uh, I change my riding style a little bit. I'll tweak it here, do this there. Uh, there's just so many different things you can do. But if you just listen and just follow it, it keeps you going. It's interesting that we're, we're having this conversation not long after another birthday and whatever the age may be. We talked about that a little <laughs> earlier. But there, there, there was a time in your career, and it's like 20 years ago, uh-huh. which is amazing. 20 years ago in your 30s, early 30s, I mean, you, you, there's, there's an accident that happens in your career that, as I've heard the story told, and this was really career-threatening at a young age. I mean, like you, were, yeah. you had a major, major back injury. Is that right? Yeah, I broke my back in 98, uh, upstate New York in Saratoga. I went down on the... Man, what a year I was having that year, too. I was crushing it that year. We were doing very, very well. And it was the last race of the day. I just won the Travers the day before. It was on a Sunday, and, and I got shoved into the inside hedge, uh, on the grass course there they don't have a rail it's it's these huge hedges and she just did a somersault and it threw me so high in the air i landed sitting down on the on the on the on the racetrack which is a turf course so it's very hard and then she wound up falling on top of me so i shattered my back in several places and so i was messed up for for a while then you know uh, i had five different doctors three said i needed surgery and, and my career was over and two said that i'd go without it and you might have a chance so i went with the better odds at two (laughs) (laughs) over the three because there's so much yet in my career that i hadn't done you know at the time i hadn't won a derby yet or or even uh, i've competed in it quite a few times but hadn't got a chance to win one yet i wanted to at least give it a go and so we tried it and it worked man i mean it's it was it took a while though it it took a couple of years to get right again well tell me you know how i I talk to guys all the time who military people in particular PTSD, you know they can't stop seeing this stuff over yeah. and over again. I wonder in your profession, maybe it's twenty years later, maybe it's not the case, but mentally, what what did a bad accident and a serious yeah. physical injury, what did that do to you mentally? Oh, it does, and and you know you'll hear some writers that that say it doesn't, but at least for me anyway, it, it does. It messes with you, but you know you have such a passion for something I, th- I think that the love for the sport overcomes the fear and you know i'm a religious guy you know so i just put it in god's hands and as long as i always stayed on that path things were always going to go well it's when i'd veer off on my own that you know the things didn't uh but it's just you know believing in god put the i just know he's going to take care of me and if, if it's not meant to be it's not meant to be whatever it may be 
But I, th- I think it's honestly, it's it's uh, you have such a uh, if if the passion is not stronger than the fear, then I think it's over. But I think if you have such a love for something, I mean, I'm willing to. All of us out there, actually, they're they're willing to die for it. Simple. <laughs> if the passion isn't greater than the fear, then it's over. What a great line. I never thought of that. I just you just made that up? Just made that up. Pretty yeah. good. If the passion isn't greater than the fear, then it's over. So your passion yeah. was greater than the fear of what had happened however many... Yeah. How long did it take to get back? I was out about eight months, and then... to. To get right again, it, it took another year after that. Okay, to, so to for almost right two again. years, yeah. the passion was greater than the fear. I just had to keep going at it until I got it right again. You know, until I got mentally, you know, was 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 back on. Uh, could you? Could you? Again, I'm, I'm asking you to go back to this 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 accident, which could have been career threatening. Obviously, can you think the the, the two tenths of a second, or however long it may have been? Uh huh. Can you like relive it in slow motion, like when the horse tumbles, you go flying through the air again? It's I'm sure in real time. Yeah. It's like a it's like two tenths of a second. But can you yeah. can you look back and go whoa? Like can you in slow motion yeah. see what was happening? Oh yeah, yeah. I'll never that that one I'll never forget because of how the the impact man when I landed. Man, I'm gonna tell you. You want to talk about? literally just knocked the life out of you you actually didn't care if you died you actually wanted to you just wanted to go to sleep you didn't necessarily want to die but you just wanted to go to sleep because you were in that much pain yeah you just wanted to close your eyes and go to sleep because you the impact yeah it just it just a shattered t12 l3 and i broke oh i forget what they call them the little wings on the sides of several others several other vertebrae's uh, um cracked both my heels so that's how hard my feet slapped the ground, so it broke both my heels. So yeah, it it, it knocked the life out of you, actually. Jeez. Yeah, it hurt, and then she fell on top of me to top it off. <laughs> the horse fell on top of you. Yeah. So if you could, you you you've hit the ground with your feet. You've shattered your ankles. You said. Uh-huh. You you've you've now hit the ground. This is the way I say it, with your butt, and you've shattered part of your vertebra. And now the horse lands on top she of rolled, you from behind? Yeah, it rolled over the top of me, yeah. She was still rolling as I landed, and she just rolled right over the top of me. Just kind of crushed me on down. But I think that the serious part of the injury was what the impact of hitting the ground. Literally just my butt first. It's almost like you were sitting in a chair except with your feet up in the air. and That was what, what got me. Amazing. Yeah, you know, and it wasn't, it wasn't her fault. It wasn't the horse's fault. It was just it was someone's mistake, you know, that another young rider that hadn't been riding very much had just made a horrible mistake and that's just part of the game as far as the danger part goes of it but that's where you want to help kids and, and teach them and help them so that that don't ever happen again to first of all you and someone else you know or any horse how, ever gets hurt how close is that to happening in every, every single race seriously because if you've got 10 yeah. horses or 12 horses look if it's a five horse field i understand it's it, the odds uh-huh. maybe decrease a little bit i don't know if that's really accurate you, you know some of the worst accidents are in those little fields but it just it, it's it, it can happen at any time any place any track i mean there's so many different racetracks running you know to be honest i mean there, we have i think 67 or 68 members now that did the permanent disabled jockeys you know guys that are that are in wheelchairs that, that have passed away we've got over a hundred and something riders that have 
actually lost their lives at the sport. So it's, it's extremely dangerous. But again, that's where it's such a passionate sport that it, it, it overcomes the fear of all that. That's um, that's really interesting yeah. <laughs> that, that you were in. in I mean, that, yeah. that accident was was really bad. And you, you kind of made it seem as if that was one of several. And I got to think that you've, you've probably ridden in, I mean, thousands and thousands yeah. and thousands, thousands of races. Of races. So how many accidents have you been in? Uh, both shoulders, uh, arm, leg. I don't know, we can probably name them quite a few. You know, ribs. Uh, it's not a matter of... Just when you're going to get hurt, you're going to get hurt. It's, you just hope it's not career-ending or you know too bad that you can't continue to do what you love to do. And you know, people might be listening to this again who maybe are not necessarily horse racing fans per se. And you know, I know this because we're close to the. You're in it, but one of the big um, controversies around the industry, and I wonder how you feel about this, or even if you have any exposure to it, is a lot of times we can show up here at a day at the track, and there are people protesting the sport. And what I always say to people is, you don't understand how these animals are treated, loved for, uh, loved by the people, not just the fans who are cheering and betting, but the people who work around the horses. I mean, I think anybody who would listen to you here today would think that, wow, this is a guy who has a great love for the animal. What do you say to people who, who kind of think that, that it's cruel? Well, I mean, they've, they've never really been back there. You know, they haven't been back there to actually behind the scenes and getting, you know, getting the opportunity uh, to see how they're, they're so well taken care of. I mean, it's amazing. In anything in life, you know, you'll have a bad apple here and there. But we do, uh, we're, a, we're a big family and we police each other as well. If anyone's ever mistreating a horse, uh, first of all, they'll be called out, they'll be reprimanded, and they'll be taken care of really quick. Uh, but yeah, if they'll ever step foot back there, I mean, these has, these horses are bred to run. They they actually want to run. But I mean, each horse has a groom. They get what is it? Explain what a groom means. It's just a personal, someone who waits on your hand and foot. I mean, they 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 literally massage and bathe them all day long, uh, always taken care of. And if you're one of the blessed to to be really really good in you in your career, off standing at stud at one of the greatest farms ever and mm-hmm. you, you live in a mansion and you <laughs> you're well taken care of now they don't all end up that way but you know uh, we're doing a wonderful job uh, and they're getting better at it and we're learning uh, you know some of these horses that, that, that when it, their career is over there's so many other things that a horse can do so many other careers there's child's horses they, they turn into jumpers they, they're just a pleasure riding horse uh, or they're just fun to have around you know to be honest with you and, and uh we're doing a really good job in our sport to, to make sure that, that afterwards that horses are still very well taken care of. So, Mike, we've talked about a lot of stuff this afternoon, and I pretty much say to everybody, I could keep going for hours because there's that much more about you that I'm interested yeah. <laughs> in. But, but for the sake of time, let's, let's fast forward. We heard about little Mike in New Mexico getting his start. Uh-huh. And then here we are sitting this summer, beautiful Del Mar, the Brigantine, which has the most insane view of the track, you know, what, what, where you race. I know we're, we're, at least from where I sit, you know, we own and <laughs> trade and we're sort of wheelers and dealers in the business. Uh, but that little kid in New Mexico back in the 70s and maybe even early 80s, who somehow quickly elevated through the Midwest and got himself to the, the jockey's room yeah. at Churchill Downs by the time he's 16 or 17. This year now, th- this has become the absolute pinnacle year 
of your career there in fact i don't know maybe you could explain but you talk about the passion overcoming the fear i don't know what is what there is left to accomplish in your sport so let, let me start off by talking about the triple crown and this horse justify that you that you want on this year did you know going into the derby that this horse had that it factor that it could oh, yeah. actually that he could actually become a triple crown where you've ridden so many legendary horses but did you know originally that this horse was special well, he he came he he came with you know with a lot of hype. Uh, they were already talking about him, you know, back at the farm whenever he was, you know, wherever they they, you know, they they start him from the ground up, you know, get him going. Uh, by the time he got to Bob's barn, he, he came highly, you know, they thought a lot of him, you know. Of course, Bob he, is Bob Baffert Bob for anybody Baffert, who doesn't yeah. know, legendary trainer. And then you get, then you get to Bob got you know once he gets him and he gets to train him for a bit, then he realizes you know he's got a lot of talent. Uh, so they thought a lot of him as, as you as you. Well, he went off probably three to five first time out, so he was already doing things in in the morning that were pretty incredible. Uh, people had seen him people train. People had seen him train, and if, and if you just see him in general, he's just he just stands out. He's just an unbelievable. He's just he'd be like seeing a LeBron James. I mean, he's just a big, strong, you know, beautiful horse. Uh, and so he ran first time out, and he, of course, not only did he win, he he uh, man, he ran so fast and looked like he was still well within himself. So you know, he has a lot of talent. Do you, by the way, at this point of your career and your experience, say, yeah, okay, impressive, nice win for a two-year-old, um, but, you know, I've ridden plenty of great horses that, that all feel that good. Or, 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 again, can you feel a difference? Well, then I got on him for the first time. I didn't ride him first time out. Drayden Van Dyke actually rode him first time out. Uh, then I got him on him the second time out, and he's going around two turns. Now that that's the big test. Now that that's when you can tell. I mean, they can be fast sprinting, but can can they can they do the same thing going around two turns? And not only did he pass that with more than an A plus. I mean, he did it. It was unbelievable how how he ran and, and the cruising speed and, and the talent and, and the air he had. Yeah, I remember talking to Bob was out of town the day that that I got to ride him, and he says, "Well, what do you think? Did he pass the test?" I said, "Man, did he?" And you know, we thought all you know a lot of him going in, and now we actually knew that. You know, he's probably up against it to make the derby. Uh, but that's where, you know, Bob Baffert came into play. Man, he's just brilliant. The job he did with, with, with this horse was just incredible. I mean, I tell people that not only if, he, if he had never won a race before Justify or ever won a race after Justify, what he did in that short amount of time would land him in the Hall of Fame. I mean, that's, that's, the, that's how good the job was Why? That he what did. Was, what was so unique about this training job that, I, that, that the average fan who just says, well, oh, wow, Justify won the Triple Crown, what, what don't we know? They had a, a thing going around. It's called the Apollo Curse. You know, it had been 135 years since a horse that hadn't started as a two-year-old win the Kentucky Derby, which it's very, very hard. And he didn't start as a two-year-old. You know, he started late, you know, only a couple of months before the Derby. So man, you're so you're so up against it. I mean, to get in there would be because he missed what three races as a well, two-year-old four. I mean, what, what probably did he miss? Uh -huh. maybe more than that. Okay, uh, but all that foundation, getting you know, even learning how to learning race. how to race, mm -hmm. you know, through the, your two-year-old years, and then getting to three, and that Apollo Curse, like I said, was 135 years since it ever been done. So, for him to not only win the Derby but accomplish what he w went on to do, which was win the Triple Crown, is just it, it's unheard of. It takes a phenomenal horse uh, to be able to do that with a mind that, that to go with it and a trainer to go with it, and for me to stay out of the way and let him <laughs> let him do what they do best, you know, and that's run and run fast, and, and all of it just together just came came together, and and then his name on top of it. 
it just justified, you know. What, what were you neat. thinking going into that last race, though, going into the Belmont? Because cause lots of horses have won the first yeah. two legs, and then all of a sudden, you know, the, the wear and tear and the quick turnaround and the distance, etc. all of these things play against a horse winning all three, which is why it was so unusual yeah. to have American Pharaoh do it. Was it a year or two earlier? It was two years earlier. Yeah, two or four maybe. Whatever it was. Yeah. I mean, to have American Pharaoh do it and then to have you and Justify do it, bang, bang, when it had been like 40 years. What, what were you thinking going into the final leg of the Triple Crown? You know, believe it or not, you would think that that would be the, the more nerve-wracking one because you, you got a chance now to win the Triple Crown. But I think the more nerve nerve-wracking one for me was was the preakness because after we were blessed to win the derby now if you can win the preakness well then you got a shot at the triple crown and he had run so fast in the derby i was and you know again we're asking him to do a whole lot in such a short amount of time they, they have a, a thing they call a bounce factor you know when a, when a horse runs a number that's so high they usually can't come back and, and run that same number right back you know that if with time they can but but not right back so I was going to have to figure out how to win the Preakness without taking, you know, again, you know, too much from him because I thought if I could pull it off without, without you know, getting to the bottom of him, uh, that we'd have a huge chance of the Triple Crown. And thinking all along that this big, powerful horse is probably going to like Belmont better than the other racetracks because it's a huge racetrack, big sweeping turns, and you can use that huge stride of his uh, to his advantage. So going in after we won the Preakness, going into the Belmont, I was just going to enjoy it, man. I, I, I literally thought if i can get out of the skate running and get him into the first turn in, in, in a good way in a comfortable happy way he'd, he'd win he'd pull this off and, and that's exactly what happened i knew down the backside he was already probably already gonna win amazing How it's a long it's a long way to go though i tell you that i was <laughs> thinking that man you got to keep that out of your head and stay focused and try to stay riding but it was it, it was difficult. I, I got to be honest, man. It popped in my head about halfway down the backside. I'm gonna win the triple crown. You know, you got you got to stop thinking that. You know. Wow, uh, <laughs> that that's pretty amazing. Because going into this year, how many derbies did you won prior to this year? One, one other in 2005. And so. and how many Preaknesses prior to this year? I had won the uh, one. I think just one, and I won two Belmonts. Right, uh, and yeah. so. I just, as we talked throughout the whole thing, I kept looking at these numbers like it's going to uh -huh. be the next Derby that you won, and then the next Preakness, and then the next, and then it's going to all culminate in this Triple Crown. Has, other than the money that a jock makes for the races, the purse money, uh -huh. which for people who don't know, you know, the, the winner takes 60% of the purse. So if the purse is a million dollars, the winner takes 600000 and the jockey gets paid 10% of that, sixty grand. Other than the money that you made for purses in these three big races, is there residual money because now you're Mike Smith, not only <laughs> Hall of Famer, but Triple Crown winner? Is is there any residual money anywhere in your business? Oh yeah, I mean, probably, you know, not as much as a lot of athletes uh, would would get, but yeah, there's some. You do sign-ins, appearances, uh, logos. Uh, someone sponsors you. You know, you wear their logo on your pants. How about and stuff TV like commercials that. and things? Has any of that opportunity? I haven't done any TV yet. Uh, but uh, some things have popped up that I'm maybe going to do in the future, you know, the near, near future anyway. So we'll see. Like what? Give me something that comes commercial. into your life. Yeah, TV commercial? Yeah, you know, Victor just did one, actually. Well, Victor had one quite, quite a bit. For uh, like a credit card company. Yeah. And so, hey, he's triple crown winner, yeah. Victor Espinosa. He did something, though, that I'm not sure you're willing to do. Which I'm was, not going to do the Dancing with the Stars. Well, then. wait a second. He, <laughs> but, but what Victor did was this. 
he said, let me take advantage of the opportunity. Sure. Because truth is, is that if he hadn't won the Triple Crown, nobody at Dancing with the Stars is inviting him. No. So he went and did it because that helps make him more of a crossover celebrity. You would not do, not, not Dancing with the Stars, but would you do something outside the box? I, I, would, I would definitely think about it. I'm not sure if I would or not. I'd have to really... I'm so darn competitive. If I, the reason I wouldn't do Dancing with the Stars is because I know I wouldn't win. <laughs> and I, I want to win. <laughs> I'm extremely competitive. I won't play golf with my friends because they, they'll beat me. So I'm not going to play a game they're going to beat me at. I'm going to play something that I can win at. <laughs> All right. I understand. Yeah. So, but you, you have taken risks before. Sure. Um, to, to see you, anybody can Google this, to see you in the ESPN body issue a few years ago, essentially, well, you posed nude. Uh, I mean, you're, you're covering yourself yeah. with your, I think, but, I mean, just a little bit. But, I mean, that took some guts to do yeah. something like that. That's outside <laughs> the box. Yeah, that took a whole lot because, uh, yeah, you basically are, and they, 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 they shoot all day long. You know, that, that's not just a, you know, 30-minute shoot. It's like a six-hour shoot almost. And, and But, you know, you, you stay naked long enough before you know it. It ain't all that bad. You just, <laughs> <laughs> just got to go along with it. <laughs> <laughs> it was funny, you know, you're so covered up, trying to cover up the first part of it, and by the end of it, you're not even, you don't even care. <laughs> <laughs> so, back to the Triple Crown then, just to finish this up. So, you, you win this the Triple Crown, you, you, people, I think, would, would think it's like winning an NBA championship or beyond. It's, yeah. uh, but you're saying life is really not, I talked to Trevor Hoffman about this last week. Hey, you're now in the Hall of Fame. How is life different? He said, yeah, I've been getting a few extra naps this week. That's how life is different. I mean, how about for you? Anything? You know, it's an it's a inner um, feeling that, that you get uh, of the most satisfied inner feeling. You know, it, it's, it's really, I know that you can walk away now and you've pretty much done it all. But, man, it's a feeling that it is so good that you just want to do it again. Because you, now you know what it feels like. So I want to do it again. You know, it's, it's, everyone said, now what are you going to do now? You got nothing left. Why don't we retire? It's like having a wonderful meal. Then you want seconds, don't you? You don't want the meal just to end and never eat again. <laughs> so <laughs> I want to eat again. <laughs> so, that, so, so was your goal to win the Triple Crown? Oh, yeah. Okay, so you've achieved it. Yeah. But instead of saying, hey, I've achieved it, I'm good, now you want another one. Yeah, and I know what it takes to do it now. So now I think I got a better chance at it to do it again, you know, as long as I could, you know, get that opportunity uh, again with, you know, another talented horse, you know, and riding for the right people, you know. Guys like Bob, man, he knows how, he knows how to do that. Uh, I wouldn't be shocked if he didn't win another Triple Crown, to be honest with you. Uh, I just got to hope that I'm part of it yeah. or part of someone's anyway, you know, uh, whoever that might be. Mike, what is the hardest part physically of what you do? Physically on your body? Yeah. Because when I watch you guys ride, I'll look at guys and I'll go, wow, look how smooth that looks. Now, I'm not a professional, but I've been around the business now for, you know, 12 years yeah, or so. You know and what I, you're I know at. what I'm looking at, yeah. you know, more than the average guy, let's just say, somebody who came out for the first time. I can watch you guys and go, look how smooth he looks. Look how easy he, he's making it look. And, I, and then I look at you guys, and I'm like, God, his quads must just be burning like a mother right now. And what is yeah. the most physically taxing part of what you do? 
I that think, has you working out nonstop, constantly yeah. watching your diet. Because you, you have to be small, but you have to be strong. Legs, you know, legs and, and uh, lungs. Man, it's amazing. Uh, uh, your lungs, man, it, it can burn so bad. Even though you think you're only doing it for a minute and tops a minute and a half. I mean, or a little more than that, but two minutes at the most. Uh, the, the burn you get inside your lungs is unbelievable. Probably, I don't know, if it's, maybe it's because you're not breathing probably 100% right. You know, when you're riding, you're so busy and focusing on, on riding, you're probably not, not actually breathing right. But your legs are probably the, the, the first that, that go on most riders. You know, you'll, you'll start seeing their body, not being able to control their body like they used to could. And whenever I start seeing that in me, then I'll, I'll call it a career. Right now, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I've been blessed uh, to stay pretty fit. You know, I, that's another thing, you know, that I would really tell young riders is start now. Start that physical fitness, really taking care of yourself, taking care of your body because, man, it, you'll have longevity. If you're blessed enough to have longevity and you don't get hurt, uh, you can ride hard into your 50s. Well, yeah, I'm hearing you say that about it doesn't just have to be about riding. No, I mean, it's it could life be in, in general. Anything, yeah. just, just life in general, man. If I did anything right at a young age, uh, uh, you know, back in the in the... In the 70s and early 80s, man, like smoking was popular. Man, everyone had a cigarette. You weren't cool unless you had a cigarette in your hand. And, and man, I'm I just so glad that I, I, I saw right away how bad they were for you and put all that stuff down. And, and although I like a glass of wine here and there, uh, you know, I just started really taking care of myself and really working out and, and trying to keep my weight down a healthy way because, man, there's a lot of bad ways you can do it. And it, it takes its toll on you. I, you know, I've seen it and you learn from it. You know, you, you can... You can wreck yourself pretty quick. Just real quick to, to finish things up. You mentioned that you like wine. I remember a few years ago there was a reality TV show called Jockeys. You yeah. were one of the <laughs> featured guys. At the time you were dating a female jockey uh -huh. and, and uh, Chantal Sutherland. And there was yeah. a lot of um, a lot of the, the show, they were smart. They, they made it not just about riding, but they tried to throw in a little romance, a oh, little yeah, Hollywood, yeah. you know, <laughs> sex it up a little bit. Um, and so I got to know through that show that you were a red wine fan and aficionado to some degree. Uh -huh. um, but then you had a great story. And let's end with this. I hope you'll tell it. <laughs> I hope I remember it. <laughs> okay, I'll try and refresh your memory and let's see if you can bring it home. The night you went out in Del Mar, had a little bit of wine, jumped into the cab to tell the cabbie to take you home. <laughs> I forget how exactly the, the whole thing went, but uh, we were actually here in Del Mar, and I jumped in, in a cab. We'd had a few, and I didn't, of course, didn't have to ride the next day, and uh, was talking to him because I was, at the time, was waiting on someone else to get in the cab as well, and they decided to stay a little longer. But in the meantime, I'd had this conversation with a cab driver where I lived and everything, not, not where I lived here in Del Mar, where I actually do live. And so when I, once I realized the other person wasn't, wasn't coming with us, I told him, you know what, just take me home. He goes, all the way home? I said, yeah, all the way home. I shut my eyes. I went to see. Well, he took me all the way back to Sierra Madre. <laughs> <laughs> so I woke up. I was like, where the hell are we? What am I still doing in this cab? And so I got out. I watered my plants. And I got back in the cab and came back. So <laughs> it was an expensive cab ride to water my plants. So, so, <laughs> so you, you told him your address in... In Sierra Madre, yeah. And, and, and he drove you all the way there? Yeah, because he knew he, he actually was from, I said, man, I live right there on Sierra Madre Boulevard, whatever, whatever, and, and, and got to talking to him about it. And next thing you know, I'll wake up and uh, I'm back in Sierra Madre. But, uh, so instead of taking the five-minute ride to your summer home. It was, it was probably, yeah, my tops maybe 10. 
I, I took a cab all the way back and, and wind up wind up I think it was a six hundred and something dollar cab ride there and back. <laughs> you know that's what I was gonna ask. <laughs> I think I think it came to six hundred and something. It was something like that. It was crazy. Six hundred But I got my plants watered anyway. <laughs> Mike, thank you for coming to the Brigantine and hanging yeah, out and bet. spending this time and letting us go way deeper than just, you know, when we talk <laughs> on the radio for 15 minutes at the most and we're talking about, like, races that are coming up. This is really great, man. Thank well, you very I've much. I've enjoyed it. Thank you for having me on. Right on, thank Mike. You. Thank you. That was fun. That was a lot of fun. By the way, I don't know if you could hear because we, we got into the Brigantine before the restaurant was really open and um, Allison... Uh, Allie Rat was sitting here and my daughter Jaden was sitting next to us and they were sitting there talking, having lunch while Mike and I were doing the podcast. So I know I was rambling at the beginning of, beginning of all this about, you know, formative years and 11 years old, and, but Mike's stories, aren't they interesting? You know, you, you could get Mike warmed up on the radio, on the phone, Mike's all business, but you can get Mike warmed up and you can get him going. And man, it was, it was a lot of fun to visit with Mike Smith at the Brigantine this week and, uh, you know, Hall of Famer and Triple Crown winner. And when you say what's left, he says, hey, I, I've got the taste. I want it again. Amazing. Really, uh, really amazing story of, of Mike Smith and how he got to where he is today. So I want to thank everybody involved with this podcast each week. I mentioned the Brigantine. They're close friends. Make sure you go visit them. Follow them on social media at BrigantineSD on Twitter and uh, and see all the amazing creations that the chef comes up with and the beautiful views. Always my friends from Callaway Golf, CallawayGolf.com. The best part about Callaway Golf, not just the extra distance, not just, hey, I can actually see my ball off the tee box. That's a win for me. Yes, I'm playing better golf. Yes, the, the Callaway Road golf clubs are amazing. And the Chrome Soft Golf Balls that Phil Mickelson is telling me, those are the golf balls I should be playing. I am Phil. The Callaway Golf website, if you're a golfer, this is for you. CallawayGolf.com, podcasts and all kinds of videos and instructional stuff. It's awesome. CallawayGolf.com. And also, Callaway, you know, they're, they're the, the, the OGO bags. These are the bags that I love. The brand OGO, O-G-G-I-O. I hope I'm spelling it O-G-I-O. OGO bags, they're a Callaway product. And so when you go to this website, there's just so much more than just golf. I got to also thank my guys at Gorilla Movers. Although I would like to say to, hey, Casey, man, you know, when I moved, I had all those plastic boxes, dude, and I unpacked all those boxes, and they're literally sitting outside my house eating up space. And while I love them and I think, gosh, I'm probably going to need them in a couple of years, um, you want to come get those things? This is the beauty of of. Casey and Gorilla Movers, I got all these like plastic boxes. I can pack it all up and move it again. But Casey, I know you guys are busy. Come pick this stuff up. If you are moving in in San Diego, outside, moving in offices, your home, these are my go-to guys, Gorilla Movers, GorillaMovers.com. That's going to do it. Thanks to all the sponsors. Thanks to Mike Smith. And thanks to everybody who helps make this podcast happen. My man, Grande Alejandro Padilla from the radio show. My girl, Allie Rat, and um, to everybody who listens, I'm so thankful because, man, it blows me away how many people say they listen and how many people say they have no idea how to listen to a podcast. So for those of you that do know and do listen, I appreciate you all. Until next time. Interviewed by Scott on the weekly solo podcast that I never keep they drugs. Keep it locked and make sure after you listen, share the latest volume, tune into the next edition. 